Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Grant Brissett. And we're excited that you're tuned in this morning. We're going to be listening to the second part of our interview with Dr. Richard Howe, who is a speaker, debater, and professor of philosophy and apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's also the president of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. He is a contributor to numerous books, including the popular Encyclopedia of Apologetics, Reasons for Faith, and to Everyone an Answer. You can find out more about him at Richard G. Howe. That's Richard g-h-o-w-e dot com. Well, thanks for listening in. Enjoy the second part of the interview. Here we're picking up talking about how God is a self-existent, metaphysically necessary being. For anything to exist, God has to exist. And here's Dr. Howe talking about that. We have existence. Something, existence is something that is added to us from outside of us mm-hmm. by a cause. But God is existence. His very essence is existing. And so for the atheist to say, well, I'm not sure there is a God, is, is really, once it's teased out metaphysically, is as, is as absurd as saying, I don't think there is anything existing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which so, is self-refuting. And so is this, is this what you're calling Thomistic metaphysics? Yes, okay. yes. Okay, and okay, it's okay. more specifically the, an argument that arises out of his very first treatise that he wrote called On Being and Essence. And I say that because Aquinas is more famous for his, quote, five ways, his five little laconic arguments he gives at the beginning of his Summa Theologia. That's what he's famous for. And any college textbook on the history of philosophy, if it says anything about Aquinas, it'll say, oh, here's his five ways. Argument from motion, argument from efficient causality, argument from necessary being, argument from graduations of perfections, and argument from design. And those are, you know, real handy and stuff. But this argument is something that's, that I think is more or less assumed through those five, but it isn't specifically one of the five. It's an argument that's quite a bit more metaphysical and, and philosophical, and, I, and I, I think it's very powerful. And this is why Alvin Plantinga would say that God is, or belief in God is a properly basic belief, correct? Well, it'll be a little bit different from what Plantinga is going to say, because I, I do think, in contrast to Plantinga's approach, that uh, that that there there is um, uh, let's see how to say this that there is a, a sort of an obligation, if you will, to give a, an accounting for how we know it is that God exists. So I think sometimes what Plantinga's the project he's trying to do in his proper basicality is more or less challenge the status quo's rules of the game of what it means to be justified in a belief. So they and so he would just say the problem is. Christians have uh, unnecessarily conceded too much hmm. to the uh, to the unbeliever by saying, "Here are the rules of what constitutes when you're justified in believing something and when you're not." And Plantinga is saying, "I think these rules are tendentious, <laughs> and I'm going to uh, challenge those rules and set up a, a different set of rules." What he ends up calling warrant. And I appreciate the project, but I, I don't. I have a different way of trying to fend off the challenge of the of the skeptic. Because I wouldn't even frame the project in terms of a debate about beliefs. It's not beliefs that we know. It's actually things that we know, trees and rocks and people. I have beliefs, but to frame it in this sort of epistemological categories, I, I, 
I tend to go, no, 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 I'm, as a classical realist, I'm going to just reword the question <laughs> to begin with. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the challenge of the skeptic. The skeptic's going to say this universe is self-existent or something came from nothing ultimately. And I don't think they can go there. So Shermer, who you've debated, put it this way. He says the nothing of the vacuum of space actually consists of subatomic space-time turbulence at extremely small distances measurable at the Planck scale. The length at which the structure of space-time is dominated by quantum gravity. At this scale, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle allows energy to briefly decay into particles and antiparticles, thereby producing something from nothing. So what's really happening here? Can something really come from nothing? Or is he uh, playing a little loosey-goosey with the facts here? Well, he's playing loosey-goosey with the definitions for sure. <laughs> and and, <laughs> I, and I, I won't go so far as to suggest he's doing it on purpose. But it is frustrating that no matter how many times I've seen the atheists corrected in this regard, they still revert back to this, this false equivocation fallacy. Because uh, this happened with Peter Atkins in his debate with William Lane Craig. Uh, same kind of stick. And that was, well, gee, we know the universe can come out of nothing, uh, into existence out of nothing. Because after all, but, but the, there was these, uh, Atkins calls them these swirling mathematical points. <laughs> and he, he equates that to nothing. The, the problem is they're, they're, they're not understanding what the philosopher and theologian means by nothing. Because what they are taking nothing to be is uh, uh, zero energy states uh, it, within some kind of quantum context. What we're talking about is just absolute non-existence. That's what, that's what we're saying, which is not what they're saying. It's, it should be manifest to anybody listening to, to Shermer or to, uh, or to uh, Atkins that when they say, well, of course the universe came out of nothing. Because before the universe, there was, and they <laughs> right. start positing a something whether it's, you know, swirling mathematical points or whatever it is. So they're, they're equating, and Hawking does the same thing, as far as I can remember. And so we have to get them to understand, no, no, that's not nothing then. That, that's not what we're saying by nothing. Now, if you want to go on and dispute that God created the universe out of nothing, that's fine. But their solution is not a counter to our, our point of view, because they're just positing a something that they're calling a nothing, namely these zero energy states. So can I take you back just a little bit? I love the distinction you made between doing the heavy lifting philosophically at first or using maybe some easier arguments and maybe having to do the heavy lifting after. Um, what are the ones that you think for the design argument that are the best, the fine-tuning, intelligent design? Do you, do you think either of those are more uh, easily used? Uh, again, I, I do think, at least this is my experience, that these appeals – to the, the latest findings in, say, biology or astronomy, fine-tuning or intelligent design or these kind of things, I, I do think those things have a powerful rhetorical uh, force uh, to them. Okay. But uh, a, a, couple of, uh, a couple of qualifications. One, someone may be uh, wanting to challenge some of the philosophical assumptions upon which science talks in these terms. You know, that, that's fine if they want to do that. But if, if we're not willing to maybe go down below the presuppositions of science itself, and we're willing to grant, say, uh, this sort of mechanistic view of the physical world that's non-teleological, that things just, 
that there's not a teleology built into the natures of things. So the scientist is not really trafficking in these categories of metaphysics, for example. If, that, if they want to do that, that's fine. But I, I do think that doing that is going to lead to a conclusion that invites some of these objections that Dawkins and others raised. Well, who designed the designer? Who, who created the creator? These kinds of things. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a judgment call as to which ones are, are more practical. Another thing, too, that, to bear in mind is that what passes in contemporary thinking for the design argument is, is not what you find in scholasticism and back to Aristotle as a design argument. And, and I actually do a presentation called uh, The Design Argument Aquinas versus Paley. Uh, William Paley, he's the one that gave us this famous watchmaker metaphor. You know, if you're walking along the ground and you kick your foot on a stone and you say, well, you know, how did that stone happen to come here? Well, you probably are. Oh, well, you know, it's just an aggregate of uh, minerals and it hardened over time and that's a rock. And then Paley says, but if you're walking along and you come upon a watch, you are compelled to give some kind of accounting because the watch seems to exhibit some kind of almost artificiality to it some kind of contrivance to it that demands an explanation more than the explanation that you gave for the rock. And so that sets the template for what the quote design argument, that's sort of the contours of it that is taken on today. And I think that that's fine because I think that resonates with a lot of people. I think they, they, they get exactly what you're trying to say and, and then uh, you, you go from there. But it does, one still has to acknowledge that, well, it doesn't give you a full blown uh, classical Christian theism. That is, it doesn't give you all of the attributes of God. There's a quote from one of my favorite philosophers, uh, Joseph Owens, and I, if you don't mind, I want to read you this quote so I won't butcher it. <laughs> yeah, he says, because he, he, he's, he's contrasting these metaphysical kind of philosophical arguments that Aquinas might give with the more popular kind of arguments that we run in, in say, in, in popular apologetics. And I like them both for different reasons. But Joseph Owens says, quote, other arguments may vividly suggest the existence of God, press at home eloquently to human consideration, and for most people provide much greater spiritual and religious aid than difficult metaphysical demonstrations. But on the philosophical level, these arguments are open to rebuttal and refutation, for they're not philosophically cogent. Now, what he means by being philosophically cogent is that because it's not predicated on this, this classical metaphysics, it doesn't seamlessly give you the whole gamut of uh, classical theistic attributes besides those attributes that are only revealed like the trinity and things like that so i think owens is more or less given me permission as a philosopher to to call from both camps to say hey for most people these uh these sort of contemporary scientific approaches that that's all you need because they'll make the jump to go oh you're telling me somebody made the universe well it doesn't it's not a big leap for me to conclude that's god I'm not going to say, well, it's Bubba. He just happens to be a universe maker that, you know, that, it's like, no, most people will make that connection. But some people are going to dig their heels in and try to find, a, a, you know, a hole in the dike here and say, well, but if he made the universe, who made him? And if he designed the universe, who designed him? And that's where I think these philosophical arguments can preempt those kind of arguments, because once a person understands the way I summarize it, if, if, my, if I gave an argument and my conclusion was, Therefore, there's an uncreated creator. It wouldn't make any sense for the atheist to go, oh, yeah, well, who created the uncreated creator? The question is absurd. 
they may challenge my conclusion there's an uncreated creator. They may challenge it on some other grounds. But if there's not an uncreated creator, it's not because I couldn't tell you who created the uncreated creator, because that's an incoherent question. If there is an undesigned designer, or should say, if there is not an undesigned designer, then it's not because I wasn't able to explain, well, who, does, who designed the undesigned designer, because the question is absurd. So these philosophical, uh, scholastic, medieval, you know, Thomistic kind of arguments stave off a whole category of objections that you find in a lot of contemporary atheism. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. I like how you referenced the natural appeal of the design arguments. I'll tell you a short story. There was an atheist that I shared my faith with a few years ago in uh, Durango, Colorado, and we began meeting weekly for coffee and talking, and he was just a skeptic about everything, not a trained philosopher or anything like that, just skeptical of everything you can imagine. And over Christmas break, something changed. We met in January a couple years back, and he says, God exists. And I I said, you've got to be kidding me. I I can't believe you came to that conclusion. What happened? He goes, the most amazing thing happened to me. And I'm expecting this incredible story, right? He says, I was at a party, and I went out on the balcony to smoke a cigarette. I'm going, yeah. And I looked up at the stars. Yeah. That was the end of it. (laughs) So he just, Uh it just clicked. He just saw design, and he said, there's got to be a designer. And I think that is intuitive for a lot of people, and I think that is one of the values of that argument. Now, I want to talk. Absolutely. I want to ask you real quickly, and I'll keep this one brief. What about logical fallacies in modern atheistic arguments? I've thought for years that someone should make a Christian uh, uh, a logic textbook that uses examples of atheistic arguments as examples of different fallacies, things like begging the question and things like that. Do you have any quick examples for us? Uh, you know, it's funny. I do. Uh... Uh, this may be slightly oblique from, from your question, but but I think it maybe it ties in. I do a presentation. In fact, I just had the opportunity to recently do it at, at a state university campus called uh, uh, Answering the Arguments of Popular Atheism. But in other contexts, I've actually labeled it bumper sticker or uh, T-shirt atheism, <laughs> where uh, arguments are, or at least assertions, very cleverly worded uh, uh, assertions are on T-shirts. Now, I wasn't criticizing, and I don't criticize atheists for actually uh, making these kind of arguments, because after all, we do it as Christians. You know, Jesus is my co-pilot, or Jesus is the reason for the season. And, and I, I celebrate these things because they stimulate thought, and they, uh, you know, they invite discussion and that kind of stuff, and it identifies a person with, with, his, uh, with his group and that kind of stuff. But the problem is sometimes when things are reduced to these clever little phrases, they, they sneak in uh, assumptions that are themselves uh, unwarranted. And so I've collected over the past number of years a number of these kinds of uh, clever little rhetorical or quasi-scientific or quasi-philosophical uh, types of statements that I think are predicated on misconceptions. You know, things like, uh, we're, we're all atheists about most gods. I'm just atheist about one more god than you. Right, you know, right. the, this, I've actually seen that on a T-shirt. Uh, so the, the challenge from the atheist is, so, you know, we're almost, a, we're almost identical. There are 10,000 gods in the world. I'm, a, I'm an atheist about all 10,000. You're an atheist about 9,999. So you're almost there. Just take your one more step. <laughs> Sounds clever, but I think it's just poor reasoning because, you know, uh, first of all, even if it was true that, say, an atheist re- rejects the 
the existence of Zeus, he wouldn't probably reject the existence of Zeus for the same reason that I, as a Christian, would reject the existence of Zeus. We may have completely different reasons why we think Zeus doesn't exist. What is more, even if the atheist rejects the existence of Zeus, that in and of itself has nothing to do with whether it's reasonable or not to reject the existence of the God of the Bible, mm. of Christian classical Christian theism. So while it, it's clever on a T-shirt, it masks all of these, I think, you know, specious kind of assumptions. And some of these things are some of these scientific ones, like who, 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 made, the God, who made God or who designed the designer, these kind of things. Uh, but I have a whole gaggle uh, of those. Now, I don't know if that was a little bit oblique from, from your direct question, because you could just take, I suppose, some of these uh, classical sort of standard informal fallacies begging the question. Uh, one that I run into in debate sometimes is called the uh, selection effect. <clears throat> if you were trying to do a statistical analysis of the relative sizes of the marine life in your neighborhood lake, let's say, how big are these fish in this lake? So you get out on the boat and you drag a net through and capture an assortment of, of fish and other things and dump it on the, into the boat, and you start doing an analysis of their relative sizes. That's all fine and good, but there's two problems. Because of the nature of your net, anything too big to get caught in the net won't be in the sampling, and, and also anything too small to get caught in the net won't be in your sampling. So... So what's happened is the, in getting the sampling, you're scandalized by the net because it has its built-in selection. And I think atheists sometimes, when they try to examine the evidence, they, they commit this selection effect that they will rule out of court a priori certain types of conclusions or evidences because it doesn't fit their, their template. This happened with Bill Craig when he was debating uh, Peter Atkins again. And so they, they brought up the question of the miracles at Lourdes. And so how do you explain these reported uh, miracle claims where people are going to, to Lourdes and be healed? Well, when, when, uh, when the moderator asked Peter Atkins, you know, well, what do you think's going on there? He said, well, there are two possibilities. The people are either lying who claim to have been healed or they were healed by some kind of natural uh, phenomena that they didn't understand. So they just attribute it to a miracle. Well, when it came to Bill Craig's turn to respond to that, Bill Craig pointed out rightly to the audience, did you notice that when Peter Atkins was giving his explanation, he said there are only two possibilities. In other words, in Atkins' mind, it wasn't even a possibility that they really were miracles. And, that, and, and Bill rightfully pointed out that Atkins didn't even know he was doing that. He ruled out a priori that could even possibly be that they were telling the truth and there really was a miracle. But he didn't rule it out by argument. He ruled it out just fiat at the beginning. His selecting the evidence was already determining an answer against theism. And you see these kind of fallacies going on in, in, in a lot of atheistic thinking, the assumptions of naturalism, for example, and, and these kinds of things. Wow, wow. Dr. Howe, I'm going to ask you to help me with a question that my daughter gave me just today. Is that okay? Uh, I don't know. I'm a little scared, but let's, let's give it well, a try. Well, I think it's a classic question that you probably know. She just texted me today. She's a junior in high school, and she got the criticism. This is what their paper is going to be trying to answer, which I think is pretty tough for junior high. And it's basically that classic question that if God is all-powerful, he could stop evil 
If he's all good, he would stop evil. So they're saying that evil exists, therefore God can't exist. What would you, in other yeah. words, how am I going to sound smart to my daughter tonight? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a tough one. In fact, I think that's probably uh, the objection to God's existence that resonates the most with people. There's a couple of things that come immediately to mind. And this, is a, this first one is not necessarily an argument, but it is an interesting observation. Okay. I think that if you just look at the history of, of human beings when we talk about things like evil and suffering, uh, almost always when people are undergoing suffering and pain and are the victims of some evil, they have the exact opposite conclusion. They are usually drawn closer to God. You see this in natural catastrophes where people are just, thank God he let me live through this. It almost never comes up in their mind, well, if there's a God, why did this tornado do this? Now, again, that's not an argument for our side or their side, sure. but it is an interesting psychological observation that just intuitively, rather than people taking the specter of pain and suffering to be an argument against God, they more or less find themselves drawn closer to God because they feel almost, I suppose, intu intuitively, that there's something about God that is also sort of unhappy, quote unquote, with this evil that they just went through, that that's not really what God's ultimate intention is. So that's that's one observation. Another thing is, I think that we, we don't want to minimize the seriousness of suffering in the world as Christians. And I think sometimes we, we might sound like that we're trying to trivialize uh, the question. But, I, but at the same time, I think we have to try to get, get people to see, well, look, our relationship with God is not something that takes place entirely in this life. If it was, then I think, as Paul said, we above all men are most to be pitied. So we have to be allowed as Christians to give our full Christian worldview in answering the question and say, well, there may be sufferings that were going on in this life, but this isn't the whole story. We weren't created to just be happy in this life. We're created to an ultimate destiny, an ultimate telos, where we are in communion with our maker, which is ultimate happiness and bliss. That's the end game. So if that's the end game, then it looks like God can be ultimately exonerated in people's minds because they're saying, well, no matter what happens between now and then, I know this too shall pass. And by God's grace, I'll be in his presence for all eternity. And then the uh, sufferings of this life will just be a pale and probably eventually a faded away memory and stuff. And then third, I, I do think, though, and I may be different from some apologists in this regard, mm -hmm. and I have to be careful here, but I do think there is an element of mystery here. I do think that we there, there what God's up to beyond what he's just revealed to us and what we can sort of discern through sound reason is uh, uh, is sometimes a, maybe a little bit hard to, to, uh, to, to conclude. And so when you ask, well, why did God allow this to happen? I'm not sure there's necessarily always easy way to make a one-to-one -one correspondence. Well, he let this happen to me, so this would take place. Or he let this happen to this nation, so that would follow. Rather, I think we just think we have to talk in these global terms. And oddly, you don't really find much about the problem of evil that occupies a lot of Christian thinking until the modern and contemporary era. It's not that the ancient Greeks didn't worry about this. In fact, the modern-day formulation of the problem of evil actually finds itself way back into, into Greek thought. But be that as it may, we still have to acknowledge that, uh, like Aquinas, for example, would just say, well, gee, God must be so omnipotent that he can even, even make good come out of all this evil. 
and he's just left it at that. So it, it, I think there's a, there's a moment there where a person has to decide, do I have enough reason to trust that God is a good God? First of all, I right. think we can show that God is good metaphysically, but existentially, do we have enough to trust him that he has my best interest at heart, despite the fact that I'm going through what I'm going through? And I think there's that obligation at some point we have to decide whether to trust him or not. We give our evidence and and reason is sort of like what you'd have to do with another human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use the analogy of a child's relationship with a parent. You can imagine what's going through a child's mind when all they know is this doctor sticking this needle in their arm. That's all they know is how much it hurts because the child doesn't understand what the parent understands, that though this may be a short-term pain, it's for a long-term good of being vaccinated against some disease. Well, the child's never going to be able to understand that as a child. They're never going to understand disease and vaccinations. So the parent says, well, I'm sorry, I can't explain this to you, (laughs) but I'm going to make you take this shot, and someday you'll thank me for it. So we have to decide, I think, as people, are we going to trust God? that I I can't maybe understand all of the ins and outs of evil, but I do think there's enough evidence, both historically, philosophically, theologically, and, and even personally, to know that we can trust God for those things that we can't fully explain in our own mind. Well said. I, I love those responses. Love them, absolutely. Could I also say, or could she also, when she's talking to her classmates, say something like, well, if we're talking and saying there's either a God or not a God, if there's no God and we're just evolved animals, then what do you say to the girl who's abused? Sorry, the strongest gorilla is just stronger. But if you get rid of God, you also get rid of the hope of heaven. Like you were saying, we have a telos. We have a, a, an ultimate purpose, and that's for fellowship with him. So do you think it's also okay to say, you know, your choices are, that's just it. The atheists don't really have a response to evil at all either, if you want to say it that way. But if you throw yeah. God, if the, the Christian God away, you're basically throwing the answer of heaven away. Yeah, absolutely. That's what Ed Miller in his book, Questions That Matter, a philosopher, a Christian philosopher taught at University of Colorado Boulder, said, well, uh, on the, the flip side of the problem of evil is the problem of good. <laughs> and, I, and I think yeah. that while in a, in, in a proximate sense, an atheist and a theist can both understand good. I mean, we know what a good pizza is, or we know what a good knife is, or this is a good car. When we press that beyond, well, but, but what makes something morally good? I think we're not able to account for it without a principle like free will in some sense of the term, not free will the way Calvinists or Arminians debate it. That's a theological use. I'm talking a philosophical use that even the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith would acknowledge using the expressions like secondary causality or whatever. So we have to have free will. So the, I, I would challenge the atheists, well, can you account for free will? You also have to have a, a concept of human nature. Because you couldn't even decide what is good or not good for a human unless a human ought to be a certain way in order to be a human. We only know what a good knife is when it's, when it's got a dull blade. We know it's a bad knife right. only because we know what a knife, quote, ought to be by virtue of being a knife. Well, we can't know what a human ought to be without some kind of concept of human nature. But I would argue that as soon as you start, the atheist starts granting these metaphysical categories, he basically is giving us all of the ingredients to construct a cosmological argument for God's existence. If he wants to deconstruct the argument and reverse engineer it and try to get rid of all the elements so that you can't conclude God, he will end up giving up metaphysical elements that give him things like human nature 
teleology, what's good for a human, and what can what what is a free will all about? So, I mean, these things kind of all stand or fall together, and I think the atheist isn't ultimately able to account for the categories of of good uh, and evil uh, in a non-moral sense, much less in a in a moral sense, without some appeal to the creator at some point along the argument. Thank you for making me seem smarter to my daughter. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, Dr. Howe, we have got to wrap it up here, and I'd love to have you on again at a future date, so we'll get in touch with you, but are there any last words you'd like to share with the audience before we close it out? Uh, listen, I just want to say thank you for this opportunity. I'm here anytime you, you need another uh, excursion in some of these things. We'll just set it up, and I'd love to do it again. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Howe. You're a scholar and a gentleman. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Great talking to you. Great talking to you guys. All right. All take, right bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed the second part of our interview with Dr. Richard Howe. God does exist, and he desires a relationship with you. If you don't yet have a relationship with him, the Bible says you can begin a relationship with him. You can be forgiven for your sins by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. I implore you to take that step right now if you haven't already to say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died for my sins and rose again. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord. Please make me the kind of person you want me to be. I hope that you take that step if you haven't already. I also hope that you'll go to GodSolutionShow.com, listen to past shows, leave us some comments, maybe even contribute to the ministry of the God Solution Show. It's a tax-deductible contribution, and help keep the show on the air. Well, anyway, thanks so much for listening. I hope you tune back in next week. Until then, remember that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.